Everyone, welcome to another episode of Christian Hunters of America podcast. This is Chet Gray. We're going to be speaking with Dar Colburn today, specifically about hunting coos deer in old Mexico. What it entails, what you need to do in order to get down there. If you want to do a DIY hunt, they have information on that. And they also have lots of information on being able to bring in your weapons, how to get on those ranches, and all the other intricacies regarding hunting coos deer during the rut on a rifle season in old Mexico. Dar is a part of Colburn and Scott Outfitters that many people here in Arizona and outside of Arizona know. He is the co-owner of that outfitting business with Jay Scott, and they have hunted bighorn sheep, elk, deer, uh, mule deer, goulds, turkeys, everything you can think of in Arizona. So stay tuned as we speak with Dar about hunting coos deer in old Mexico. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. This is Chet Gray. As always, my co-host in studio today, Mike Ornoski. How are you, Mikey? We are doing good. Hello, everybody. Hope everybody's doing fantastic on this winter day in February. And like I said, we have Dar Colburn from Colburn and Scott Outfitters. Um, most people in Arizona probably know who Dar is. He is very successful guide as well as a very successful uh, parent with taking his children out, both his sons, on a lot of a lot of hunts here in Arizona. Um, great family man and uh, busy as always. He just got back from a rifle uh, guided hunts down in Old Mexico. How are you, Dar? Good. How are you guys doing? We are doing great. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to get on the CHA podcast. We really appreciate it. A lot of people here um, in Arizona have a big following of coos deer, and a lot of people from out of state, as you're re- very well aware of, once they start hunting those little gray ghosts, it gets in their blood, and they want to come back to Arizona over and over. But uh, getting a rifle hunt... For sure. With a with a a rut hunt with a rifle here in Arizona is challenging, and if people want trophy class deer, a good option is going with you guys down to Old Mexico, where you can have a ranch to yourself uh, and use a rifle, so you can get long distance. Because we know how hard it is to sneak up on those little guys during archery season. If you could um, just talk a little bit about yourself, or a little introduction for the few that don't know you, and talk about your guys' outfitting business and everything anyone needs to learn about hunting coos deer in old Mexico. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, like you said, I just got back um, from about 20 days of, of hunting coos deer down in Mexico um, with our, our guide service, Colburn Scott Outfitters. Um, <clears throat> we, well, back up. I'm, I'm born and raised in Arizona, um, native, born in, in Phoenix here. Um, started guiding in, I think it was 2001 or 2002 in Arizona. And then about the same time, uh, started going down to Mexico to hunt, hunt coos deer with my, my hunting partner and guiding partner, Jay Scott, um, about that time frame. I think he had gone the year before or a year or two before me, but, um, we started hunting down there ourselves, um, around 2001 and just, just got addicted to everything that old Mexico has to offer in terms of, of coos deer hunts, um, the country, the people, uh, the ranches, 
you know, the size and, and quantity of the deer. And it's just, it's unspoiled down there. Um, and just been going every year since. I uh, started outfitting down there probably, I want to say it was about 2008, roughly. Um, and so, like I said, my, my guiding partner down there is Jay Scott. And um, we've been, been doing hunts down there for quite a few years and just, just love it. It's, it's addicting, like you said. Yep, and I think one of the key points I just heard from you is is the people down there. And I think sometimes we have a misunderstanding when we think of Mexico and we think about borders and all the other stuff. You want to kind of expand on that? Because I think that is an essential part of the overall enjoyment and the experience in Mexico is is those individuals that live in Mexico with their ranches and their hospitality and things like that. Sure, yeah. And I, and I get that question quite a bit. I actually had, had someone text me the other day and, and said, you know, I've, I'm interested in doing a hunt. I've seen some pictures um, of guys going down DIY and fully guided. And, you know, a lot of the bucks they, they shoot are, you know, similar in size to some of the bucks in Arizona. And and while I agree, the it, this is my opinion, the experience is, is a totally different experience. Um, you know, you're, you're hunting unpressured deer on a on a ranch that, that doesn't see hunters all year. Um, if you find a buck and, and decide not to shoot it, you know, the next day it's, it's still going to be there. You know, they're unpressured. Um, the, the, you know, quality and quantity of deer is, is, is great. Um, but you're, you know, it's, it's unspoiled. You're not dealing with four or 500 other people hunting the same area. You know, you are, plus you're hunting them, during the rut, which is the big difference between hunts in Arizona, you may get a day or two, you know, the last few days of a, a December rut hunt, um, which isn't even really, in my opinion, the rut, it's, it's almost pre-rut if at all. So, um, but yeah, the people down there are, I mean, it's just like anywhere there's good people and bad people, but for the most part, um, we're hunting cattle ranches and, you know, dealing with the, the, uh, the owners and their, their employees, their cowboys, and they're just, they're very humble, hardworking, grateful, grateful people that, um, they're just, I really enjoy spending time down there and it's, it's, it's a simple life. Um, it's unspoiled. We can, we kind of get caught up in, in all our day-to-day activities here. And it's nice to unplug and go down there and just enjoy a week of, of, you know, not checking email and your phone every few minutes. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more when you're able to get into a hunting spot here in Arizona and hike well back in where most people aren't willing to go or in another state or out of country. The the draw for a lot of hunters, not only is it to harvest and, and to push your body and um, just clear your mind, but part of it is that, that solitude and, and getting, you know, in touch with nature and in touch with... Uh, God's great uh, creation and being down there where no one's stomping and uh, walking around and hiking all around. And, the, and and it would be good for new hunters if people are willing to go down there from out Absolutely. of state. They could, if they do archery, I, I'm sure you guys do. I know I've watched a lot of the videos and follow you guys on social media quite a bit and see a lot of the harvest, but most of the hunters are rifle hunters but if they wanted to do archery they could correct they could we we cater more to the rifle hunters um it's it's just tough 
with the archery because you know you're you're sitting on water and it's so it can be dependent on on weather right you know if it's dry but um i know i know on the, the second ranch i hunted this year um i ran a bunch of trail cameras and really the cameras didn't didn't do very good because of the fact there's was so much water uh you know available for them so it, it would have been really tough if you were a bow hunter you know trying to sit water down there at that time of year no different than here right yeah exactly exactly well mike's got it figured out here so mike yeah mike with his archery coos deer is on a different level than most but that's why uh that's why he mentors so many people yep dumb luck just lucky right place right time a lot of luck to it no it's not dumb luck i, I guarantee you that I've, I've known you long enough to know it's not dumb luck okay <laughs> appreciate that the the yeah. rifle even if say you have people that you know we all encourage everyone to practice we want the most ethical shots on these animals but just like lots of uh, misses with archery people do miss uh, more often than uh, a lot of people realize with rifle and especially now with the the craze of going longer distance and having different cartridges and and rifles that are more more efficient and uh, better builds and whatnot they they just do a, a lot better job than what happened in the past with a you know your old school grand grandpa hand me down and you're going to induce a lot of or at least have a lot more misses I would imagine on newer long range rifle hunting than uh, than near perfect shots but can you touch on that a little bit on because it is so untouched down there it gives even rifle hunters more of an opportunity because one, there's a, a lot larger quantity of bucks, but also um, if you haven't spooked them too much, or if you haven't, you know, got in there real close to their beds and they smelled you they're they may not know what that was. Correct. Or correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. I mean, the, the deer just don't get the pressure that we have here in Arizona. Um, you know, if you shot and missed a deer here in Arizona, you may not see him again for, a couple of weeks, um, they may, you know, go nocturnal or move or whatever down there. It's, it's definitely not like that. Um, not that some of the, you know, places don't have some hunting pressure here and there, but, um, a- another factor to that is you're hunting them in the rut, which they tend to forget stuff or not pay attention to it as much as, you know, let's say a hunt here in October. Absolutely. A little bit, a so, little bit different on their of our, yeah, exactly. And most of our shots, I would say, you know, typically for for the rifle hunters are two fifty to four or five hundred yards. Okay, is what to kind of expect. Yep, exactly. And the other thing to expand on that is, I think <clears throat> that sometimes we forget is, like, if you're guiding somebody, and let's say you have that buck at three hundred yards, you as the guide down there in Mexico, you're actually taking the extra time and set up and not. Where here, I, I've been on some rifle hunts, and I mean, there's they're pressured to shoot that buck because we don't, we know there's two other guys on the ridge that may be looking at that same buck. Where you have the right. confidence that that buck's not going to leave, and you can make sure that everything is done perfectly. You want to expand on that portion of it? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know how it is here in Arizona on these these hunts where so many people in the field. Like if, if you if you have an opportunity, you better take it. It may not be there in, in ten or fifteen minutes if you try and move closer or you know, try and get the best setup you can or, you know, move your position where down there, you know, we're the only ones hunting the, the ranch. So 
you know, if you need to move closer or, or, or wait till, till the buck gives you a better shot, you can do that. And, and you're most likely still going to get the opportunity. Um, it is, you know, hunting them in the rut does present challenges in terms of, you know, sometimes the deer are moving around a lot. And so it is hard to, to get set up, um, for let's say a newer hunter, um, because the, the bucks are chasing those chasing off other bucks and, you know, moving all over so that, that can present a challenge, but, um, it's, it's a good problem to have. I, I would love to have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how do you tell someone that's never hunted coos deer how to prepare or what to expect when they come down there? Well, we'll talk a little bit about all the customs and, and getting through the border and what you have to do for your rifle in a little bit, but getting your body prepared because of the island or the sky islands in Arizona that they live in. If people have hunted them here, they kind of know the terrain. They know the elevation that they're going to have to climb and can get their body and legs and back in shape. But if someone's coming from the Midwest or from somewhere else that they've never hunted that kind of animal or in the terrain and elevation that they're at, what do you do to educate them so that they are prepared and um, they can get back in there and not, you know, having to go only where a side-by-side can go? Sure. I mean, it, it, the, the more you can hike and the more you can walk, um, it, it's just going to increase your, your chances and opportunity. Um you know, we, we do take hunters that, that can't, can't hike or walk very far for whatever reason. And typically, you know, we can still have a, a chance at a good buck. Um, but that being said, the more, more you can walk, the greater your opportunity. And, and that doesn't mean climbing giant mountains every day, day after day, but there, there may be a time where you spot a buck and need to make a move on it. Um, and so if, if you're in, you know, shape, it's easier to get there, I would say, but just walking, um, hiking, you know, two, three, four miles a day really, really makes a difference. And like a lot of previous topics and (laughs) guests that we've had on, we obviously speak about putting that bino on a tripod and being able to sit in glass because you can't hold 15s very steady and, and get a good sight picture. Um, are people, more just with social media and articles and YouTube and different videos out there are a lot more people uh, accustomed to that. And it's not like, you know, a far-fetched idea or that people from the Midwest or, or even people that are from here that have never hunted it. You still see a lot of people sometimes with only um, handhelds, but obviously when you attach that to in one way, shape or form to a tripod, you're going to have a lot higher success finding those animals is that more normal now or is that still people are uh, surprised to hear that no it's, it's definitely more commonplace um i would say when we first started we definitely had had guys show up without a tripod now it's i, I mean i can't think of anyone this year that that didn't show up with you know good pair of binoculars on a tripod um and and that's the thing about kujir as you guys know you'll, you'll spend a lot of time sitting in one place or bouncing around from place to place and sitting and glassing for hours and hours and hours. And then, you know, when it's time to move, you move quick and, and, and it happens fast. So there is, there's a lot of downtime behind the binoculars glassing. I mean, that's the, the majority of the day is spent 
you know, classing from high points. Yeah, and if if you're used to sitting in a ground blind, sitting water, you know you got to have patience and hopefully a bunch of caffeine to keep you awake because that is <clears throat> super boring to me. I, I'd much rather move around and put, potentially get winded than sitting in a ground blind. It's just not as much fun. Some people excel at it. I'd rather be in a, either a tree stand or, or spot and stalk. But if they have that patience and they've already developed that, then sitting in glassing um, kind of comes natural and they're not, you know, twiddling their thumbs and saying, where are the animals or how come I can't find them? The biggest reason that they can't find them is just because of how well they blend in. And, uh, it, you know, it takes a trained eye in order to be able to observe those little gray ghosts in, in the mountains. They blend in for very well for a good reason because everything can eat them. Yeah, definitely. Yep. And I'm going to expand on that because I was blessed and privileged to come down and, and hunt with you guys on a rifle coosier hunt during the rut. And, and I think one of the, I look back some of the, the things that I looked that opened my eyes the most. One of the ones was just sitting on a mountainside with professional hunters and how they glass their techniques, how they dissect a, a hillside, how the, which angles they look at. I think for most people, even if they're paying to go coosier hunting, if they took that extra step and they actually were a student and actually dissected and, and questioned and spent a lot of time understanding what you guys are doing, that's making you so highly successful, what they can learn in that five day, seven day window. I mean, it could, it could take me 10, 15 years just to learn those same exact techniques that would springboard me to be a much higher successful hunter. You want to expand on how that one-on-one relationship and what your guys are doing and they're actually being able to see a lot of that stuff there. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would hope that, you know, if someone spends a week with us, they're, they're going to learn a lot about hunting coos deer, where to look. Um, you know, when it's hot, you're looking on the the north shaded slopes in the afternoon, you know, in the morning and it's cold. Do you want to be, have the sun at your back and looking at those more open slopes that they're going to light up, you know, at first light, um, you know, that those all are all things you learned, you know, just by, by time in the field. And, and hopefully we, we, uh, you know, shorten the learning curve on that. I'm sure you do. I mean, if you're only able to go rifle hunting once a year, even if you do go twice a year and try to tackle them, um, during archery season and then put in during the deer draw here in Arizona and you try to go after them, that's only twice a year. And even if you went for a week, if you're doing it by yourself or with buddies that have the same amount of experience as you do, then, you know, yeah, you're going to learn from your mistakes. Some of the best lessons learned are the hardest, but if you went with a guy like you guys, or you go with someone that is a mentor and knows, uh, you know, five, 10, 15 years of hunting these little guys, even in that week period, especially being surrounded by your group, you're, you're going to learn through osmosis just from watching them and, and picking your guys' brains. And with rifle hunting, you're still quiet, but you guys can talk while you're glassing a hillside when they're, when they're picking your brain or asking questions on what to look for, or you're walking them in on a buck to see if it's something that they want to shoot. And you're trying to describe a, a saguaro or a century plant or an Ocotillo. And, you know, now they're looking for that the next time or the next morning, because that's where you found it. Right. Right. And, and I mean, on, on our hunt, typically there's, there's several guys with tech. So not only will they get to, you know, hopefully experience, their own, you know, stock and, and shot, but 
everyone's involved. I mean, it's a team effort. We work, work together, the guides and, and hunters alike. And so, you know, we may help a couple other guys shoot bucks and they're right there, you know, whether they're done or not helping out on it as well. So you, you know, the learning curve goes up cause you're, you're helping and, and right there watching on, you know, three, four, five, six different, different harvests, hopefully in the, during that week's time. Yeah. That's big on being able to, to assist that team effort goes a long way. It makes you more appreciative of everybody's harvest. And it also, like you said, it, you get skilled at being able to look at that country and that mountainside you're seeing, which like you said, okay, is it, you know, January, February during these rut rifle hunts down there. Okay. It's going to be a little bit cooler. These are the sides of the mountains. They're going to get up. They're going to be, like you said, that back and that, even though they have, uh, when they're not flagging their tails down, that gray does, once you, once you realize what they look like, they do pop out even when they blend in and it does increase, uh, your success. Even if you're not up, do you guys like picks, you know, pick numbers or, draw straws or how, how does that happen when, when you have four guys or six guys in camp, do they all, if, whether they know each other or not, how do you guys get to decide on who's shooting first? Uh, typically we, we're a, do a two on one, two hunters per guide and, and usually alternate days on, on who shoots first. Okay. Um, but typically, you know, in two or three days, one of them has, has shot a buck and then the other guy's, you know, you don't have to worry about that. Then he's up for the, he or she's up for the yeah. rest of the week or the rest of the exactly. time. Exactly. Exactly. And we have a, we have a, usually, usually on our hunts, it's a good mix of, of guys that, you know, have, have shot bucks and, you know, are looking for a specific size or look and, and, you know, another guy maybe that's never <laughs> hunted cooster before. So that, you know, we try and pair people up accordingly. Um, what are some of the expectations for guys going down there are, is it normal for the ones that have never hunted coos deer to have a, a set, anything (laughs) branch antlered or anything with a, uh, you know, two or three by three. And then the guys, obviously I'm sure that have hunted more want a, a higher trophy class or a more mature buck. Yeah, I mean, I would say most of them are going to want a mature buck, and you know, we try and shoot bucks that are hundred inches or better. Um, but but some of our guys that have hunted with us a lot, you know, they may not want to shoot a buck if it's not you know pushing the hundred and ten inch mark or or bigger if they've you know harvested you know bucks like that before. So it, it's usually it's a pretty good good mix of of people. Where where are you getting more of your clients or if you can touch on that are you getting a lot still from arizona or are you getting people from all over the country i would say it's it's a pretty good mix of of um people i would say it's close to 50 50 you know local arizona hunters and um people from out of state so pretty good pretty good mix of people um the word's getting out on how exciting it is to go after them, especially with a rifle. And I'm sure that's good right. for business, which is great. That's what we like to hear for you. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, January in, in a lot of parts of the country is, is a cold, you know, not much going on time of year where, you know, you can come out and hunt and be in, you know, 60 degree daytime temperatures. And 
um, you know. Yeah, do you want to stay in the Midwest and snow and the the cold for sure? Do you want to stay in the Midwest and ice fish over uh, enclosed shack, <laughs> yeah. or do you want to come down with with Dar to Mexico and hunt coos deer in January? Take your pick. <laughs> exactly. Yep, and I think that was a good point you brought up is how you intermix. Um, basically, these different individuals kind of come together and form a, a relationship and fellowship where from the time they meet at the Mexican border, they really didn't know each other. Then by the end of the week, all these friendships are built up. And and I think that's an important piece, too, that I think the listener should understand is you may have somebody that's harvested a lot of coos deer, and they're there for a particular you know 110-inch coos buck or a character buck, but you may have other people that just want to shoot a quality buck and experience it. And that, that excitement between both of them, I'm sure it's very addictive because you feel the energy off of each of them. And I think sometimes when we start shooting larger bucks, we forget what it's like to shoot a lesser buck, not to say it's a lesser buck, but a buck that we may just be glassing over that somebody would be super excited for that opportunity. And I think sometimes that, that reminds us of why we hunt coos deer and the excitement of it. So. Yeah, and, and like you said, that fellowship and camaraderie and everybody's working together, um, that atmosphere in camp is, is a lot of fun. And you guys offer, for someone that doesn't want the full guide experience but still wants to come down there and experience Mexico with a rifle during the rut, can you elaborate and talk a little bit about your guys' DIY hunts? Yeah, sure. Jay, Jay runs some uh, DIY hunts down there where, you know, basically you're, you're leasing or, or purchasing tags for a ranch and you're on your own to, to hunt and, and, you know, do all the stuff in camp. But, you know, some guys that, that have hunted, you know, Cousteau before or been to Mexico before, that's a good option because it saves them some money and they can get a group of, you know, two, three, four, five guys together and, and go down and have a good time. And are the ranches that you guys partner with, are they do they have lodging, or are people bringing tents and trailers and stuff and having to bring that through the border? How does that work? I would say the majority of the ranches we hunt have have a house. Um, they vary in terms of amenities, you know, or or how nice they are. Mm-hmm. But I would say majority of them have a house. There are a few that that don't, but we let you know that up front. <clears throat> And I'm sure some of the locals down there know how to prepare some really, really good food. And depending on what you're hunting, in this case, some coos backstraps or tenderloins, I'm sure they have some phenomenal recipes on how to prepare those and have a, a traditional Mexican cuisine, correct? Oh, yeah, for sure. That's one of the typically the staples of one night is we always keep some backstraps and you know grill them over the mesquite coals. That's a, that's a great meal. For sure, down there. Sounds delicious. Mike's a heck of a chef. He comes up with a lot of different recipes. I joke with him, and a lot of people do, that his taste buds have been fried over the years, so he adds extra peppers just so he can taste (laughs) it. Um, Some people can take it. Some people can't. But most of the time, 95% of the time, everybody loves what Mikey cooks. Yep. 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 Jalapenos are good. There's (laughs) there's definitely some hot... uh, spices down there and i had three or four guys in my my last group that were from uh new mexico and they there's a there's a chiltepin down there which is almost like a it's a like a a pea pod sized or a pea sized little um round 
like uh, I don't even know. It's got little seeds in it, and they crush them up and sprinkle them on food, and it's really, really hot. And like I don't, I don't eat them. They taste good, but they it's too hot for me. But the guys from I had from New Mexico were were all about the chiltepines on the last trip. Oh man, that's that's all. That's my world right there. That's exactly me. Yeah, <laughs> Mike's salivating right now. You're talking about the heat from all these different peppers. The guys from New Mexico, uh, I'm yeah. sure their taste buds are 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 right there because of all the hatch green chilies that they eat. Exactly. Exactly. Can you touch on a little bit for our listeners and for me, educate us on what it takes in order to get down into Mexico, um, where some of the better borders crossings are, or where do you guys t- typically go through and all the permits that you would need to fill out, whether ahead of time or in person? Sure. So we cross a lot at Douglas, Arizona. Um, you can also cross, I would say that some of the other big ones are um, Nogales. Um, Naco, and then there's some places in New Mexico that you can cross as well, depending on what, what part of Mexico you're going into. Um, before crossing, if you're taking a firearm, you need to stop it on the U.S. Customs side and get a, a form. It's a 4457 to register your firearm. Um, basically, they'll, they'll just look at the serial number and sign that, um, that form. That way, when you come back into the U.S., they'll want to want to see that form for your your firearms um we go through a, a gun permit process through the the mexican government usually several months in advance um so our, the firearms are all permitted um when we cross the border we'll we have to have the guns checked in right there at the border with the police and then we also go to the the military and they they sign the gun permit uh, as well. So then, then when we come out, it's the same process in reverse. Go to the military, and then the, then the police, and they they both sign out the uh, the gun once it's once you're about to leave the country. And then coming back on the U.S. side, there's uh, <clears throat> typically four different pieces of paper that that need to be filled out or brought back with you with your with your deer. Um, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife form uh, declarations page, and then you need a, a ranch contract from the ranch or outfitter down there, and then uh, the UMA sheet, which is basically the um, it's the like the ranch hunting registration page through the, the Mexican government. Do you have to have a hunting license to go down there, or any type of permits, or? Um, how does that work? Well, it's your your tag is your your license or your permit, and that's does each ranch get a set amount by their government in order to give out, or do they? Yes, oh, okay. they do, and that's part of that that UMA number or that UMA. It's UMA is the, the government. In order to to have tags on their ranch, they they have to have a, basically a survey through the government and then that registers their ranch and then they issue them tags. Okay. Kind of like some of the states that have landowner tags. Yeah, I would say it's similar to that. And then getting vehicles across or getting side-by-sides with registration or vehicle Mm -hmm. insurance, is that a problem or have you guys streamlined that and made it real easy over the years? No, I mean, you can either do it online prior to, 
to to going if you if you can you know do it a couple weeks in advance you can do it online um which is nice and easy that way you're not dealing with it at the border um but then you can also you know get your permits your vehicle permits at the border as well um you just need your registration for you know your truck your trailer and your let's say your side by side and they they all need to be in in one person's name so if if I'm driving my truck, it needs to be my trailer and my side-by-side. Because side. I'm you sure you'd run you into problems if I'm taking Mike's and my truck and my right. trailer and it's registered right. to Mike Ornosky and on the side-by-side. Yeah, side. yeah you, you can't do that, so you need to get it registered in, in Mike's name if he was taking his truck and trailer. It's a Ford, so I'm not sure it would make it, but <laughs> that's probably why I'll have to drive <clears throat> Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But I can tell you um, from my experience, it was all of those steps and all that accountability. It was so seamless um, witnessing how you and Jay basically just met everybody at the border. And it was just like step after step after step. And it was almost like the Mexican police and the, the military kind of welcomed you guys and smiled and kind of pat you guys on the back saying, hey, you guys are back. Thanks for coming into Mexico. And it was it was truly amazing to see the open arms of the Mexico side of how thankful they were to come in. And it was almost like you had all the f- paperwork lined up. Everything was sorted. And it was almost like it was almost like a rubber stamp per se, because of the confidence and understanding what that process is. And I think that brings a lot of confidence into going to Mexico and bringing clients down there. Yeah, sure. I mean, there, there's, you know, there's always challenges that come up, but the, like I said, most of the time, my experience with the people down there is they're just super friendly people and, you know, they're happy to, to have us there. So We want to keep it positive, but have, have the, has there ever been a time when there has been problems or trouble that you guys have experienced? Um, the only, you know, I would say the only, like this year we had one guy that um, filled out his, his serial number. He, he transposed like a T instead of a seven. Um, so we ended up having to leave his gun, you know, at the border, but other, you know, little things like that, you know, or I would say are the only challenges here and there. That I'm sure reassures a lot of people. Everybody hears in current day and age, everything that the news is talking about and all the, all the scary things that everybody's getting, push down their social media throat and going there with a guide service that is very experienced and very knowledgeable on all those different little intricacies, filling these forms out, knowing the people ahead of time, even if there's term over or turnover on the, on the individuals working in those posts, just the, the reassurance of going down there with people and knowing that we're, we're going to be safe is a huge, um, stress load taken off their, their shoulders, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, we, one thing Mike can, Mike can tell you, but, you know, we cross the border, we have usually two, three, four vehicles going down. They're all driving together. Um, you know, we, we drive to the ranch, we get behind the, the gate, it, the gate's locked and, and we're there for a week. We're not going into town. We're not, you know, going here or there. It's just once you get to the ranch, you kind of forget about everything else. So it's, yep. it's 
That's awesome. <clears throat> Without saying where they are or anything like that, from when you cross the border, how within a few hours are you normally in the spot that you're going to be, or how long does that normally take? Yeah, I mean, I would say we have a bunch of different ranches. So some of them are, you know, 30, 40 minutes from the border, and others may take two or three hours to get to, um, just depending on, on the roads and, and what have you. So I, I would say most of them are within a couple hours of, of the border. Yep, that's true. And, and I would say what, what was kind of interesting is being from Arizona, we're used to our, our accessible dirt roads. And I think that was kind of an eye-opener, too, is we may have 15 miles of a dirt road, but that dirt road is not maintained by our forest service. You know, it's it's done by the ranchers and things like that. And really, it's like a four-wheel drive road going to this beautiful ranch, which is part of the, the adventure and the scenery. <laughs> yeah, and if I remember right, Mike, when you came down, I think I... I broke a leaf spring on my trailer. You did. Uh, and thankfully, the rancher actually had an extra leaf spring and um, fixed it and welded it and did all that for me while while we were down there. So that, that worked out great. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely incredible. Um, so going back to the ranch, which I think a lot of the listeners and I think the perception of Mexico is, so when you get to the ranch, it's private property. Um, you guys kind of team up, and then you have – these coos deer that you're going to be hunting. And I know in the past, I'm sure you still do it, is you kind of go and pre-scout that ranch and kind of have an understanding of what's there and what to look for and kind of already have an idea. And then that way when the hunters get there, you already kind of have everything kind of pre-set up and, and ready to go. You want to kind of expand on how you spend the extra effort sometimes go down there in the summer and the fall and kind of preparation for all your clients to come out there to be highly successful. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, most of the ranches we've we've been to or hunted, you know, in years past and or, you know, go during the summer or early fall and put cameras up or, or go scout or, you know, so I, a lot of them, it's, it's nice. We've hunted for years and so it's, you feel like you're hitting the ground running from, you know, the afternoon. As soon as you get there, you know where to go. Yeah, but I think that was showed because I know – on our hunt, that gentleman shot that beautiful double main beam buck, and that was a buck that you knew that was there, and, and you were looking for him, and it just it took a few days to find it. But the rewards of, of knowing that buck was there, then the diligence and the dedication to find that buck, to me, was highly impressive. Yeah, that was Lee, if I remember right. He actually hunted with me uh, again this year. Oh, fantastic. That's great. Yeah, kind of funny. <clears throat> with... Um them being the same species, but not having near the hunting pressure that they experience up here or in New Mexico. Do you guys use the same tactics when going, um, trying to harvest them and trying to get one of your hunters on that? Or do you guys look for the same vegetation or do you guys look at moon phases or do you play it the same as if you were guiding somebody up here or do you guys have different things because they're, they're not as highly pressured? No, I would say you're hunting them and, and using the same tactic as here. It's just the deer. The deer, I would say, maybe are out in the open a little bit more. Um, you know, some of that has to do with being in the rut, and, and typically it's a little colder than, let's say, an October hunt here in Arizona. Definitely. Um, <clears throat> Have you guys, um, I know it's not a hot topic, but I know when they do happen, Everybody goes crazy trying to figure out if it's true, if it's not true. Have you guys ever seen down there coos bucks pushing mule deer does for 
how hybrids are created? I haven't myself, um, but most of the ranches I've I've hunted don't you know there's mule deer are nowhere around. Okay. So I I personally like I didn't see any mule deer this year, um, and typically I don't on the on the places we hunted. They're they're not anywhere anywhere around. Some of the the flats ranches you potentially um, you know could have some of that. But um, we're, we're hunting typically mountain ranches, and, and the mule deer just aren't aren't anywhere close to where we're hunting. Nowhere near that elevation. They they like it. No, they like it down there where where us lazy guys want to be and not have to climb that elevation. Try to keep up with all these human goats. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> do you um, do you see that not only just because of the 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 pressure, but do you, are you seeing a higher, much higher age class in Mexico just because there's not as high a harvest rates and because they are far more limited than the amount of tags given up here, whether year round or not, are you seeing overall uh, a much larger age class? I don't know that I would say much larger. I, I do think sometimes there can be, and that can vary ranch to ranch depending on, on predators and, and what have you. One, one thing I will say is, you know, we hunt lions here in Arizona, so I think that and predators, so I think that helps. Um, you know, a lot of the ranches down there, they just there is not much in terms of predator control, and so sometimes, sometimes that can can hurt. Um, so I, I no, I personally I don't see much change in age class, um, but it, I, I would say there is a little bit. It, it's there is a little older age class is what you hope for down there. And any difference in, in the amount of non-typical versus up here? Are you seeing any, any awesome non-typicals with the double mains or extra kickers or all gnarlied uh, antler configurations, or is it about the same as what you'd expect up here? I, I would say it's very similar and it, and it can depend and vary year to year based on, on moisture too this year seemed to be there seemed to be more i saw more little extra points and stuff than in the last couple of years and probably due to you know the good monsoon rains we had down there great with just to touch on what you guys were saying about no one down there really hunts the predators do do the people on the ranch have an issue if you did take a mountain lion and if they don't are you seeing a lot more of them because there isn't as many hunters going after lions? Um, I would say you do see lions probably more, but like this year I personally didn't see any. I know one of our guides saw, uh, I think he saw three in, in 20 days, but I, I personally wow. didn't see any. So, Just um, getting to see one it, walking around yeah. in, in the in their natural environment and watching them walk and st- you know, how graceful and how secretive they oh, yeah. are is, is incredible. Someone getting to see three in less than a month is, that would be quite the, quite yeah. the experience. No, they're, they're a neat animal to watch for sure. And unfortunately you usually don't get to see them for very long. So That's for sure. Mike, once again, yeah. he, he underplays um, his hunting abilities and probably blames it on luck, but he's had a couple encounters with lions over the years and, um, 
the last one I remember in northern Arizona, I wasn't up there with him, but he was one across the road and getting to just, you know, see it bound away and perched up on a rock and it looking at you. And it's just a different experience of a predator animal staring back in your eyes versus a deer or, or, you know, any other prey item. For sure. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> For sure. Uh, going back to Mexico as it relates to, to hunting all day, I know something that a lot of people don't realize is the importance of being out in the field. And I know when I went down to Mexico, and I'm sure this is what typically happens is you guys are hunting dark to dark. I mean, there's no reason to go back to camp for three, four hours. You're, you know, those coos deer are going to get up and be moving throughout the day. You want to kind of talk about the importance of not just hunting two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, and just going back and sitting around the, the cabin or the house, wherever is within that ranch. Yeah. I mean, most of the time, you know, we we're up before, before it's light, we're packing breakfast and lunches with us. And like you said, we're out there all day. Um, I, I actually personally, it's, I would almost rather hunt the middle of the day for Tuesday during the rut than, than, you know, the last couple hours before dark personally, um, evenings can be, can be tough it seems like um they just those deer have have a tendency to have have a lot of activity and movement between 10 o'clock and two o'clock so i've i've had pretty good success in the middle of the day you know finding bucks and um versus you know the last hour or two before dark yep and i found the exact same thing especially as an archery hunter i mean I'd rather show up at eight o'clock and leave at three o'clock. If I had to only pick a certain window, that would be my prime time of hunting. Matter if it's rifle hunting or archery hunting, it just seems like something happens in that middle of the day and the coos deer becomes so active. It's it just I, I don't understand it, but it seems like I just start picking up all these deer that I've been looking at for hours in the morning. All of a sudden, they just start appearing everywhere. Yeah, for sure. Do you see that they're because? In my experience, I see them going to water during that day, and that's where our January over-the-counter archery hunts are really successful. And even, you know, the August hunts, a lot of people that are sitting on ground blinds or tree stands have a high success rate or a higher success rate when they're coming to water. Do you think it's the same? I mean, none of us are biologists, but do you think it's the same kind of propensity that they're coming to water in drought areas or drought years? during that 10 to two period and that in the same sense makes them more active during the rut during those four hours or eight to three or 10 to two? Uh, I don't, you know, it's cool out that time of year. So, you know, we may be typically, you know, around low thirties, upper twenties in the morning um, with fifties and sixties during the day. So I don't think it's a function of that. They have to go to water. Um, not that they, you know, wouldn't water every day, but I just think it's their their nature. They're they're finicky. Um, when it comes to weather and, and cold, it seems like they're they're just a can be really funny. Um, I, I've seen them lay in the, you know, in the sun when it's cold until seven thirty eight o'clock, and then get up and start moving around. So I, I just I don't think it's a function of just water. I think that's their their habits. You know they they have that kind of midday just in their dna on when to be active right yeah yeah exactly so everybody listening out there when you want to start targeting them and you either are doing it diy 
Um, Mike has said it. I've said it. Other guests have said it. You've got to stay out there all day. One, I think there's no better nap if you are really tired than on the side of a mountain uh, during midday. But if you can stay out there and not go back to camp, plan accordingly, bring plenty of water, bring plenty of food, and stay out there from uh, dawn to dusk, and you'll have a higher success rate. You'll at least see a lot more animals, whether you whether you capitalize and are able to harvest you're going to have a higher chance of doing so because you're going to see more animals during that. I, I call it 10 to 2, but it's during that noon time when a lot of people want to go back to camp and kick their hunting boots off and relax. I'd rather take a nap for a short you know, rest on the side of the mountain, get back on the glass and be there and have that chance of them, whether they're during the rut following does and chasing does or going to water or just moving from one spot to another, you're going to see that more often during that midday time in that sun. Yeah. The only, the only time I, I, when it gets really, really hot and you're down more in the deserty stuff here in Arizona, I've, I've seen them, you know, they'll come to water, you know, 10, 11 o'clock, but then that, that, uh, middle of the day time when it's extremely hot, seem like they they lay up for me we don't want to get up and walk around either they're they don't they don't want to yeah if you're hunting when it's hot not in northern arizona where you can find them in in some of the ponderosas or you know some of the higher vegetation and elevation i've never hunted a marchery other than during the winter months i've never been down south i always try to do archery up north because I don't want to be hot either. It's it's hot enough yeah. even in northern Arizona during August, much less if you were down south sitting in water and surrounded by a a nice hot um, ground blind. It'd be like hunting antelope, but even hotter. Exactly. I'm going to circle back because I think it's important um, that we kind of touched on it and something that, that I learned and I really – you know, it meant a lot to me was you talked about how each hunter basically as they harvest, they become a, a group of hunters. And I think one of the things that really stood out was at a couple different points during you guys' hunt, you guys are basically on this ranch, the different guides and their two to one or whoever their clients are, you guys are all communicating constantly. So it was kind of interesting. You want to, I was going to have you kind of talk about that is how you guys all communicate and you guys are in constant contact with the other guy with your fellow, like with Jay yourself, and, and all of a sudden a deer pops up and they're redirecting you to a different angle and you guys are, you have this special formula of, of how you describe things, which was incredible to me, how just the, the wording and how you describe things. And next thing you know, you're looking from two miles away at the same deer he's looking at, but at a different angle. You want to kind of talk about how that partnership really works out really good when, when bucks are being located and things like that and you guys are kind of dialing it in to get everybody's eyes on it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that just comes with, with hunting with someone and spending a lot of time um, glassing with them and, and working together. Like, I, I know most of my guys can call and tell me, you know, where a buck is and give me a very detailed description, and I can usually find it pretty quickly. Um, and and that's, a lot of that just comes from, you know, working together for, for years. Uh, and I do see that with, with hunters that are newer, you know, they'll say, Hey, I have a buck. Okay. Where's it at? Uh, you know, it's over there on that Ridge. Like they, they just don't know how to give the details that, 
let's say our guys that have been doing it for years know how to describe exactly where it's at or, or come up with a, you know, general reference point that's easy to see with your naked eye and then, you know, scale it in from there. Yep, exactly. And I, and I noticed that when that was happening is then the focus became on now this whole team is going to focus on getting that buck harvested for that individual. So it was instead of just, Hey, I'm glad you found it. We're going to keep looking over here. The refocus comes to is this is a group thing. We're going to all be successful and we're all going to focus on this buck and get this one harvested. Then we'll go to the next one. So that's, I think that was yeah, another it, huge I mean, benefit, you know, to Mexico. That's the, you know, kind of the team mentality is we're all working together. We're all, you know, it's not a, not a competition. We're all here to help each other and have a great week. And, you know, it may not be your turn right now, but when it is, you'll have the same, you know, five, six guys, you know, working for you. And it, it just, it makes for a fun hunt. We've had a lot of people, you know, tell us that they, they really enjoyed that, that part of it. Give you a chance. Uh, Mike, you got another question? Uh, well, last question I had was speaking of guides, um, you guys have an up and comer guide that's now down there in Mexico. We've, we've witnessed him growing up and now he's a, a fine young man. And I know his dream was to go to Mexico. So how's your newest guide coming along? And, uh, I, I've seen some pictures and I've seen the smile on him. So thought we'd brag about your son a little bit. So <laughs> yeah, Parker, Parker's actually been, this was his second year, um, guiding with me down there and and uh he's he's been great he he uh he killed the the biggest buck on on the first week with me and the biggest buck on the second week so it's been a little bit hard to live with for the last 10 days or so <laughs> <laughs> love it uh, i'm happy for him he's you know he's grown up hunting with me and it's uh i'm proud of him it's just it's nice to see him you know sometimes you think your kids aren't listening to a word you're saying but then when you step back and, and see how they, you know, what they do and how they behave, it, it makes you, you know, makes you proud that some of the stuff at least is soaking in. So yeah, that's, absolutely. That's awesome. It's been fun. I know both of your sons have been highly successful in hunting and they have to be listening to you in order to be doing that. There's no way you just, I'm, I'm sure they're natural born hunters, but there would, they would not be as successful have they not had you in their lives. So both of them have had, a lot of success and have had a lot of trophy animals, which I'm sure they're very thankful for having you in their lives as their dad. Well, I appreciate that. And I hope one day they'll, they'll look back and, and appreciate, you know, the stuff myself and my wife and my friends have done for them. And, and I'm sure they will. I, I know the older I get, the more I appreciate what, what my parents, you know, did for me. hundred so. percent. We'll just close. Can you uh, brag a little bit about your guys' outfit and talk a little bit about the success that you guys had this year? How many hunters did you have and um, how many people tagged out and how people can reach you guys? I don't have exact numbers on hunters or tagged out, but it was a really good year. Killed a lot of great bucks. Um, like I said, we've been going down to guiding down there since, I believe, 2007 or eight. Um, we'd love to have you if you're interested in a coos deer hunt. Um, Colburn and Scott Outfitters is the website or, or on Instagram. Um, myself, Dar Colburn, or my, my partner, Jay Scott, um, reach out to us and we'd be happy to talk to you about um, getting something on the books for Mexico. 
We'll have to talk to you in the future about some rams up here in Arizona and maybe get you or Jay on and, and speak about the Goulds turkeys down there that are the same kind of opportunity where they're untouched in, in Mexico and a lot of people that want that that slam got to get the Goulds. Absolutely. And as yep. always, we end in a prayer. Mike, if you could uh, close us out, please. All right. Uh, Lord God, we, just, uh, we love you, Lord, and uh, we just thank you, Lord, that you can... Allow us, Lord, to have this opportunity to come and talk about hunting and, and your amazing creation between two different countries, the United States and Mexico. And, and Lord, what we do know is Mexico is a beautiful place with uh, beautiful people that were created by you, Lord. And we just ask that you would just bless the, the country of Mexico, Lord, and, and those people. And we bless, bless those ranches that, um, that these Americans are coming to hunt a deer that basically you created, Lord. So I just ask that you'd bless those ranches, bless those individuals that manage those ranches. Lord, I ask that you just bless Dar and his family and his boys and keep them safe and all they do. And I just thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 <clears throat>